Welcome to another Sunday morning sermon from Marysville Christian Church. We're glad you're here joining us on this journey to learn more, love more, and look more like Jesus. We invite you to grab a cup of coffee and a Bible as we dive into God's Word. I am Keith Huey. Um, as Ramey announced to the Bible class this morning, I am 60 years old. Um, and I spent the first 20 years here in Marysville, and I see people in the room that I know. And it was fun to drive through the middle of town last night and um, to see what you've done with the place. So uh, thanks for inviting me. It would, of course, be easier for me to sit in the seats, but I, I understand that it is a privilege to be asked to stand up and speak. And um, so I thank you for the introduction and for the prayer. I asked Remy which text I should talk about this morning, and he was no help at all. He told me to cover whatever I wanted to cover, any topic, any text. And I suppose that means that he trusts my judgment, but it's a tough call to make. I don't really know what you need to hear this morning. There's no way for me to know that. Next week, I suppose I'll be back in Michigan, and some of you, I suppose, will never see me again. What should I say in this moment? I get to do this pretty frequently. And here's what I like to do. My general practice in this situation is to choose a text that will allow me to revisit some of the stories that we teach in our children's Bible classes. Um, these are stories that we might find in a precious moments children Bible. You know, Noah and the Ark, um, Joseph in the coat of many colors, Daniel in the lion's den, Jonah and the big fish. I also have done the story of Naaman, which you talked about this morning. We all know these stories, right? They're classics. My children learned them, and now my grandchildren are learning them too. By the time we're adults, we sort of assume that we've got these stories figured out. And I'm afraid that we never really engage them on an adult level. This is a problem. Think about it. We rarely, if ever, tell these stories completely when we tell them to our children. Many of these stories would be rated R if we read them and illustrated them completely. Many of these stories have vicious little hooks that we don't want to talk about. And so, I think there comes a point when we need to come back and we need to view them all over again with adult eyes. That's what I want to do. We need to ask questions such as, what does this story reveal about the character of God? What is the actual point of this story? Why should I hear this story? We might even ask, who on earth ever decided that this story was a children's story? 
I think that if we read these stories again, if we read them fully, they might surprise or shock or offend us. They might change the way we think. I'll give you a fair warning here. If you don't want the Bible to interfere with your lifestyle or with your politics, you should probably stick with the Precious Moments version. So, we'll start with David and Goliath. That's one we'll tackle this morning. And we'll be camping out mostly in 1 Samuel chapter 17. I'm going to begin in verse 1, and I'm reading from the New International Version. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Selko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Dummon between Selko and Azkabah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. Goliath, of course, was a giant. We all know that, right? However, unless you are reading from one of those newfangled translations, this text never says that Goliath was a giant. The NIV in particular never uses that word. That is the word though, that we usually use when we're teaching the children. Goliath came from a place called Gath, and Gath was famous elsewhere in the Bible for having some really big guys. This text in the NIV, however, does provide us with a measurement. It says he was six cubits and a span. That creates just a little bit of a problem because, well, some of the biblical manuscripts do in fact say that. They say that Goliath was six cubits and a span. That would mean that he was nine foot nine. However, the better biblical manuscripts say that he is four cubits and a span and I'm very, very sorry to tell you this, but that would make him only six foot nine. Um, so this might be a difficult word for people to hear this morning, and it is good that the children have left the room. Um, but six foot nine is a more likely measurement. But we shouldn't miss the point. Whether he is six foot nine or nine foot nine, the point is the same. Goliath is a big dude, right? This is especially true in the world of ancient Israel, where the people were not generally six foot nine. So when you hear the word giant here, you shouldn't be thinking of Jack and the Beanstalk giant, but you should be thinking of a really, really big guy. And there's more. Let's go back to the text again and continue with verse five. It says he had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod 
and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Oh, once again, whatever his height actually is, Goliath is impressive. No other soldier in all the Bible gets such a detailed description as Goliath. He's wearing 125 pounds of bronze all over his body. His helmet is made of bronze. His legs are covered in bronze. His spear is made of bronze. The point of his spear is made of iron and it weighs 15 pounds. He's got a shield, not sure how much that weighs, but he has a servant who carries that for him. This guy is state of the art. He's a monster. Here's what he says, beginning in verse eight. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. In these verses, Goliath is making an intriguing proposal. It's hard to know what he really means. Does he actually mean that this war can be prevented if Israel will accept the challenge? This whole thing can be settled with only one person getting killed? If Goliath gets killed, they call the whole thing off? It's not going to turn out that way. Whatever he means, it's going to require one exceptionally brave Israelite to step forward. And that does not appear to be happening. In verse 16, we are told that for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. It looks for a moment like a bit of a stalemate, except Israel is at a clear disadvantage. They're absolutely terrified by this massive opponent. Nobody wants to tangle with him. This is the point in the story where David shows up. David, we are told, had three older brothers who belonged to the army of Israel. The oldest brother is named Eliab, so keep that name in mind, it's important. And the others are named Abinadab and Shema. David is a youthful guy, but he's not a child. The next chapter makes that clear enough. The point here is that he is young, and he is too young to be experienced in combat. He has no medals, he has no chevrons. He's completely new to this game. He was sent here by his father to bring food to his brothers. And we're told in verse 23 that he was standing in the battle line when Goliath came out and repeated his challenge for, I suppose, the 41st time. What happens? And you know the story. 
David is dismayed. He's appalled that the Israelites are so paralyzed with fear. And he volunteers to fight Goliath. So let's pick up the story again in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant, David, has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. One of the most surprising parts of the story comes next. It's the part where Saul says, go, the Lord be with you. Why did Saul do that? Perhaps he's persuaded? Maybe? Perhaps he feels like he's not going to get a better deal from anybody else in his army? Maybe that's it? But in verse 40, we're told that David took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with a sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? You know what we call this, right? It's trash talking, right? Goliath is trash talking, and he means it. We see here that he is mocking David's pathetic military preparedness. David, it would seem, is kind of a pretty boy. And Goliath is not impressed. But then the trash talk turns theological. Go back to verse 43. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David's response is like the climactic part of the story. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. 
David's not doing this for King Saul. He's not doing it for his brothers. He's not doing it for the army. He's not doing it for the great nation of Israel. His concern here is, you have defied the Lord. You don't do that. So verse 48. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell face down on the ground. And then in verse 51, David takes Goliath's sword, he uses it to kill Goliath, and cuts off Goliath's head. This is the part where the little children all say, ew, except for a few troublemakers in the room who start high-fiving each other. Okay, well, you've heard that story. What do we learn from this story? What is the point of this? Well, we normally emphasize David's courage, his trust in the Lord. Or, one well-intentioned person has said this. The next slide there. It says, we all have a Goliath. Your Goliath could be fear of going back to school, excelling in your career, having uncomfortable but necessary conversation with your manager. Your Goliath could be juggling work and home life, taking on a massive new project or at work. I don't believe it's humanly possible to stare down all our Goliaths, but I know we can take them on one at a time and become more confident. I won't tell you who wrote these words. I'm not trying to attack this person at all. I will say though, this is a common application of the story. It makes a very nice sentiment, but it says nothing about God. It does not capture the point and the power of this text. It isn't the reason we need this story. If we really get the point of this story, if it really hits us between the eyes and sinks into our forehead, it's going to hurt. It's going to sting. Let's look at this again a bit more closely. There is a scholar named Abraham Kuravila who has made a really great observation here. And it has captured my fascination with this text. He observes quite appropriately that if you want to understand this story, you need to understand the bigger narrative. If we do that, we will see that David is not fighting one big guy only. On the contrary, if you read the whole thing, we will see that David is contending with three large and impressive adversaries. Goliath's only one of them. One of those adversaries is going to be King Saul. And we meet Saul back in chapter 9. 
eight chapters earlier, verses one and two. Does anybody know what it says about King Saul? We get very little description of Saul, but what does it tell us? He's a tall guy. Chapter 9, verse 1, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia, of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. And again, in chapter 10, verses 23 and 24, we are told, they ran and brought him out, and as he stood among the people, Saul was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, Do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the people shouted, Long live the king. He's tall. In chapter 13, verse 22, we are also told, that Saul and his son Jonathan were armed with spears and with swords. By the time we get to chapter 17, Saul's military wardrobe begins to look a whole lot like Goliath's. His weapons and his armor are so big and bulky that David cannot even wear them. In verses 38 and 39, we get this comical picture of David trying to walk around in a bronze helmet and a coat of armor with a royal sword in his hand, and I'm reminded of a small child who's trying to wear his father's shoes. Saul is physically, visually impressive. But, and here is the crucial realization, Saul does not measure up in the eyes of God. And in just a few verses, he's going to become David's archenemy. God has already rejected this man from being king. That happened in chapter 15. The other giant is David's brother, Eliab. We actually meet Eliab back in chapter 16, when Samuel was looking for the next king of Israel. Samuel, we are told, was impressed with Eliab. Why is he impressed? Well, Eliab's got the right look. Samuel fell for this at least twice. He's handsome and he's pretty tall. Here's what we're told in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Eliab is important to the story. If we come back to chapter 17, we can see in verse 28, Eliab attempts to prevent David from volunteering. David had to fight Eliab before he debated with Saul, before he fought Goliath. Verse 28, when Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard David speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Oh, man. this is part of the story. We usually miss it. 
Big brother facing off with little brother. Biggest brother facing off with littlest brother. Eliab thinks he can see David's heart, but he can't. He is most definitely looking at the things people look at. By the time we get to the actual battle, we ought to be able to see the point that the author is trying to develop in this story. The Lord does not look at those things. If you read through the entire book of 1 Samuel, you will see that God never wanted this nation to have a king to begin with. In chapter 8, the people say, we want a king, we want a king. Why do you want a king? Because the other nations have a king. And God begs them, please look at something else. Turn your eyes to a different kind of reality. The monarchy you desire is not going to be what you think it's going to be. If you get a king, says God, you will need a conscripted military. If you get a conscripted military, you will need to have a defense budget. If you have a defense budget, you're going to have some big taxes. And the people said, oh, give us a king. And God finally says, I'll give you a king. Apparently, Israel's imagination could not be stretched as far as God wanted it to stretch. They could only see a world where they would be led and protected by heavily armored big guys. Because of this failure of vision, we get to the end of the book of 2 Kings, and Ramey seems to be heading there in his classes. The nation of Israel comes crashing down. They've been politically divided, and they've been taken into slavery. Even David himself would eventually become a well-armed giant of sorts, and he quite tragically would get himself enmeshed in a system of political power and violence. To me, this all seems quite instructive. We live in a nation that is also obsessed, you might say, with height, muscles, and the right kind of look. We care a great deal about our physical appearance. I would rather be this height than be Ramey's height. I'm just saying. According to people who keep track of these kinds of things, now you could check me on this. I don't know how... I don't know where they get these stats, right? The average woman spends 55 minutes per day making herself look beautiful. Is that close? Who, who is setting that curve? I, I don't... Some of the same people are saying she spends about $200,000 over the course of her lifetime on makeup and skincare products. I picked a few things up at Meyer. I believe that one. Because <laughs> those are expensive. In politics, on talk shows, in Hollywood, it is common to hear people go on and on and on. 
praising or mocking people because of the way they look. Social media has distorted our vision even further. There's a heavy price to pay if a man or a woman falls short of our cultural standards of appearance or if your life does not look glamorous enough. It's important to look healthy, to look wealthy, to be fashionable. At some point we ought to ask, are we and God looking at the same things? Our society is also obsessed with bronze helmets, heavy armor, shields, javelins, massive spears. No other society in the history of this world has embraced that concept more completely than we have. 1.3 million active duty troops in 170 countries all around the world, quite famously, our defense spending is bigger than China's, Saudi Arabia's, Russia's, the UK, India, France, Japan, all combined. Even our civilians are armed. I won't go there. We've got to be vigilant. And we need to be asking ourselves, are we looking at the same things that God wants us to look at. This is the punchline of David's trash talk with Goliath. He says, the Lord does not save us with swords and spears. I don't expect the Pentagon or Madison Avenue, Silicon Valley or Wall Street to look at the things God looks at. But I do expect it from you. I expect it from the church. If the church doesn't stand up and challenge the distorted perspectives that exist in our world, I must ask what good we are. What salt are we adding? What light are we shining? When somebody tries to define a nation's greatness in terms of military firepower or economic advantage, we must be the people who stand up and look with a different set of eyes, who say, hold on, we don't think God's looking at those kinds of things. We must be the people who ask, what is God looking at? When somebody looks at another person and mocks their physical appearance, their ethnicity, their social status, or their IQ, we must be the people who stand up and say, that's not what God's looking at. We must be the people who say, here is what God is looking at. When somebody tries to evaluate a church on the basis of attendance or budget or facilities or staffing or programming, we've got to be the people who stand up and say, no, God is looking at something else here. And if we can't figure out what it is God's looking at, let's pull the group together and try to decide. This is the point where I'm supposed to call the team up. And while they're doing this, I, I, want, I want to give you an assignment, right? 
I won't be here next week, so I can't check up. Maybe we'll do that. I want you to resolve at the end of each day to ask yourself a couple of questions. Question number one, what did I look at today that God was not looking at? If you can't think of something, you're not trying very hard. What did I look at today that God was not looking at? And then the second question, okay, having identified those moments, what did God want me to see that I failed to see? That's your assignment. Let's pray. Lord, we're asking you for something big this morning. We want to see what you see. When you look at a person or a family or a nation or a church, we want your perspective on this world. We aren't sure that we will always be able to handle this, but this is something we want. Please give us your vision. Please give us the capacity to handle this. Please forgive us for all those opportunities that we've already missed. Please give us courage and imagination. Please give us the strength to live appropriately in light of the things that you will show us. In Jesus' name. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to learn more about Marysville Christian Church and connect with us, be sure to go to our website, marysvillechristian.org. If you are near the Marysville area, we would love to have you join us on Sunday morning. We have our Bible study classes at 9 a.m. and our regular worship service is at 10 a.m. Our address is 17,000 Waldo Road, Marysville, Ohio, 43040. Our phone number is 937-642-9838. Email is office at marysvillechristian.org.